We're in John 13. John 13, verse 31. When Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. The word of the Lord. So we continue our series in the Gospel of John. No greater love in the upper room with Jesus. We're looking at Jesus' final hours with his disciples as he's preparing them for life and mission after his departure. So far, we've looked at the demonstration of love and humility as Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Last week, we looked at the betrayal of love as Judas resolves to go to Jesus' enemies and give him up. Now, when Judas was gone, John ominously tells us, and it was night. Not just because it was nighttime, but because the evil plot against Jesus was rapidly unfolding. As soon as Judas leaves, we now have just Jesus with the 11, and everything becomes more urgent. Time is running out. And yet, isn't it the case that when things are most urgent, time often seems to slow to a crawl. And so John slows the narration down to take us deeper into the heart of love that the Savior has for his own. The time factor is a main feature of these verses. Six times time is marked as if the minute hand of a giant clock was ticking in the room. But instead of going from one hour to the next, the time being marked goes from one age to the next. No other hour in human history would be more important. The next time we have even a similar hour will be the return of Christ. This is the hour of the birth of the new age, the kingdom of God. And just like with the birth of a child, with the labor and delivery, there are so many things in all of that. So also this hour includes the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and the sending of the Spirit. Jesus' captors will soon be on their way. There is no turning back the clock. The hour has come. And so there's a there's a certain urgency with which we must hear these words. So let's look at the hour of glory, the hour of departure, and the hour of love. Let's start with the hour of glory. 
Again, in verse 31, we read, when he, Judas, was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. The time markers in these verses are the words, now and at once. With Judas gone, Jesus starts talking about a number of things that were not Judas's concern. After all, he's preparing his disciples for life and mission after his departure, and Judas would not be a part. He would not be involved. Now, a month ago, during Christmas Eve, we looked at John 1.14. There John told us about Jesus, we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. That glory they saw included the turning of water to wine, feeding the 5,000, restoring sight to a man born blind. But the greatest hour of glory were the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, listen to what Jesus says. He says, now... The Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will glorify the Son in Himself, and will glorify Him at once. Five times Jesus uses the word glorify, which means to give glory. These verses are talking of the interconnection, the relationship between Jesus, the Son, Bringing glory to the Father and the Father bringing glory to the Son. Each glorifying the other. At the same time, by the same action, both Son and Father receive glory. What's this action by which both Son and Father receive glory at the same time? And that is the crucifixion. The crucifixion is that event, that uh, moment When so much glory is accruing to the Father and to the Son. And so the question for us is, how is that possible? How does the crucifixion bring glory? Because from the perspective of the Jewish and Roman authorities, the crucifixion was exactly the moment when Jesus was shown to be an imposter and shown to be defeated and shown to have no glory. So how can Jesus talk about this being the hour of glory? When they're going to be glorified. Well, listen to what he says in chapter 12. He said this just a few days before this evening. In John 12, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Listen, if you're thinking of becoming a Christian, you want to know, you need to know, that the Christian message is about life following death. Life following death. First of all, there's what Jesus calls eternal life. Now, eternal life begins at the moment of faith, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a kind of life that only those who follow Jesus have. It's a life without end in a world without sin. It's a perfect life in a perfect world where all your hopes and longings come to pass because God is with you. Now, the fullness of this life follows death. Because you may be thinking, well, I haven't had that fullness of life. No, the completion, the fullness of it will not happen until it follows death. Or more precisely, the completion of that life follows the return of Christ. So there will be some people 
that will go straight from this life to the next life, bypassing death altogether. How fun would that be? Although there will be some major trials preceding the return of Christ. The other sense in which the Christian message is about life following death is what Jesus is talking in chapter 12 of John. And that is dying to yourself to give life to others. He says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. He's not teaching about agriculture. He's drawing from agriculture to teach us about spiritual life and how it works. And so he says, a seed remains single unless it falls to the ground and dies. And that's what's going to happen to him. And when it dies, it produces many seeds. And as he dies, he's going to now bring life to many, to the world. In that same chapter, chapter 12, Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The lifting up of Jesus refers to what? The crucifixion. And as he's lifted up in that glory of the crucifixion, he is offering life to so many. But you see, this is what the world has a hard time grasping. It's the very thing that Jesus says here. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he starts talking about his death. Do you see? The hour of his death is the hour of his glory. The hour of his glory is the hour of his death. How can that be so? Because by his death, he's offering life. Life abundant, life eternal to the world. And because the path to glory for him is death, he prescribes the same path For those who follow him. He says anyone who loves his life in this world will lose it. While everyone who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Do you see? Lose your life now. Keep it forever. Life following death. We see this with agriculture. We also see it with motherhood. Every one of us is here. Because our mother lost much of her life to give us life. Whether she lost sleep, health, years of life, something else she could have done with all those years, with all that time, her sanity. I know because I talk to a number of you like, oh, I'm losing my mind. Moms are vivid examples of the principle Jesus elucidates here. Jesus redefines glory as death. As giving of yourself for the benefit of another. And everyone can become glorious and achieve glory on those terms. But see, the glory that we love is the glory of power. Asserting ourselves, asserting our group, our agenda, our interests. We have the hardest time redefining glory as sacrifice, which is why in these verses, Jesus says it five times. This is how the father glorifies the son. This is how the son glorifies the father in dying to launch the new world. So that's the hour of glory. Let's talk about the hour of departure. He goes on. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. 
These five chapters that we're in are all about preparing the disciples for Jesus' departure. And he's quite tender with them. He says to them, my children, or even my dear children. And then he says to them, I'm not with you much longer. Just like I told you, the Jews, uh, I am going. And where I'm going, you cannot follow. You cannot come. Now, that's a difficult statement to receive, even if they don't fully understand what he's saying. Earlier, he had told the Jews, this is in John 7, that uh, he was going away and that where he was going, they could not come. And so in light of his departure that is impending and on the heels of washing the feet of the disciples. So framing it by those two events, Jesus gives his disciples a new command. He gives them a new command to love one another. And you would think that such a command, I mean, to love one another would spark all kinds of discussion among them. But Peter derails the conversation. (laughs) Because he wants to go back to talking about Jesus' departure. So we're going to skip down to verse 36. We'll come back to those verses in a minute. But Jesus tells them, where I'm going, you cannot come. Then he says something else about love. But Peter comes back in verse 36 and says, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now. But you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So Peter says, Lord, where are you going? To which Jesus replies, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Do you see those time markers again? Jesus is drawing a distinction between now and later. What he's saying to Peter is, where I'm going now, Peter, you cannot follow. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die for the sins of the world, and you cannot do that. But later, you will follow me to this same place. Yes, you will give up your life for me, Peter, but not right now. And I love how Peter keeps at it. So he keeps asking him, you know, Peter still does not understand. There's a lot about the Lord's meaning that he doesn't get. And so he asks again, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now, remember that Jesus just called them my children. Jesus is not angry with Peter. Jesus loves Peter and Peter loves the Lord. And yet the Lord knows that the flesh is weak. And that the darkest hour has just descended upon Jerusalem. And so he asks, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So another time marker there, before the rooster crows. Peter is about to go into his biggest failure of faith. And the Lord knows it and he's preparing him for it. You know, about this incident, one commentator says, sadly, good intentions in a secure room after good food are far less attractive in a darkened garden with a hostile mob. At this point in his pilgrimage, Peter's intentions and self-assessment vastly outstrip his strength. Doesn't Peter remind us so often of ourselves? Of the spiritual vigor and clarity that we can feel when we're in a room like this, cozy and safe, 
only to go out into the world and have a failure of nerve or to go into a time of temptation and realize how little we care, how weak we actually are. The denial of Jesus that Peter is about to go into, all of us have had or and will have. The good news is that Peter is not Judas. Judas was a thief and stayed a thief. His character never changed. He was never washed clean by the word of the Lord. He never received the Lord. That's not Peter. Peter loves the Lord. He may be a little too sure of himself right now and number of times, but his loyalty to the Savior was unwavering. He lived his life for him. And he did lay down his life for the Savior some three decades later. That's the hour of departure. Let's talk about the hour of love. The hour of love. So again, in verse 33, Jesus says, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus talks about his departure, which we looked at briefly. And now he talks about this new command to love one another. Now let's think about this for a moment. Because in another context, this is in Matthew 22, when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment of the law is, right? The greatest commandment in the Old Testament What does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, he says. And then he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is asked to summarize the Old Testament, the 613 commandments that you find in the Old Testament. What is it? And he tells them, and he really summarizes it to one. There are two, but they're related. Love the Lord and love your neighbor. And those have been around. The law had been around for over a millennia. So why does he say a new command I give you? Love one another. There are a few things that are new. I'm going to give you three. First, it's a new day. It's a new day. You know, I've been saying, we've been saying that the hour of glory for Jesus has arrived. And it's the hour of his death. And a new development, a development that can never be undone. The, the clock can never be turned back is about to happen in salvation history. This is the hour of a new age. You know, the, the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit usher in an age that prophets and righteous people of old longed to see and hear, but did not see it or hear it. It's an age of fulfillment. It's the age of the new covenant Time has changed. It's a new day. Think about watermelon seeds for a moment. If you take the same watermelon seeds and you plant them in the winter, you get no fruit. But if you take those same seeds and you plant them in the late spring, early summer, you get sweet, juicy, wonderful watermelons. Same seeds, different time. The time makes all the difference. It's a new command to love because it's a new time. It's a new day. But also, it's a new pattern. A new pattern. Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. 
So what's new about the commandment to love is not that love had now been around. It's that the extent of love, the expression of love that was now a reality and a possibility because of the coming of Jesus, that was new. This depth of love had never been seen by humanity ever. In the Old Testament, God revealed his love. He revealed his heart of love, his hesed. We talked about this in the series on Jonah, right? A love that forgives. A love that includes those we exclude. A love that identifies with the oppressed. And yet, in the Old Testament, in that time, God did not have flesh. We could not see his face. He could not die for us. And so when John in the prologue to this gospel tells us, and the word became flesh, the word that was God became flesh. It sends shivers down our spine. God took on flesh. They saw him. They touched him. They walked with him. They ate with him. They heard him. They heard his words. They heard his accent. God. God's accent. It's crazy to think about this. He saw them. He, with two human eyes, saw them. He touched them. He walked with them. He ate with them. He heard their plight. He laid down his life for them and for us. Do you see? Before Jesus... Divine love was rather abstract, and it's still the same for people who do not know him. You talk to them, I talk to them, regardless of the religion, the philosophical system, it doesn't matter. Just the love of God, it's just kind of abstract and nebulous. And as far as human love, human love has always been tainted with selfishness or with mixed motives at best. But when Jesus walked the earth, finally, we knew what perfect love looks like. That's why when Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another, that statement pulsates with life and purpose. Think about the fact that Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet, the lowest of jobs. Even Judas's feet. I mean, the condescension, the humility Think about the fact that in just about 12 hours, he would be hanging on a cross as a criminal, though he had done nothing wrong and everything right. But he did it so that he could cleanse us by his death. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Do you see what's new about the commandment to love is the extent of love that has now been unleashed upon the world. And then finally, it's a new community. It's a new community. Let's go back to the watermelon example. Same seeds, wrong time, no fruit. Right? So the when matters. But that also applies to the where. Where you plant the seeds matters. Same seeds, wrong place, no fruit. Right? If I plant the watermelon seeds right here. Right, I just plant them right here really carefully. Even if it's in the right time, late spring, early summer. Still, there's going to be no watermelons. Why? Because it's the wrong place. So here's the question. Where does Jesus drop the seeds of this command? Where does he drop it? And the answer is, he drops it not out there in the world for people to trample on him. 
No, he drops it right in the middle of the community of faith. His people, his most devoted followers. He did not give this command out there to the crowds. He gives it to his people. And we're going to see this more clearly in John 15 in a few weeks. But there we're going to see that Jesus turns his people into a vineyard. And he is the vine. And we are the branches. And the father is the gardener. He has cleansed us by his word and by his death. He has given us a new heart and a new birth by his spirit. And so we are that new community that has been given this new command to love one another. And to the extent that we love one another as Jesus has loved us, they will know, the world will know. That we are his disciples. Now, this is a very convicting. This has to be one of the most convicting statements the Lord makes. For us to love one another as he loved us. And that by our love for each other, the world will know that we are his. So convicting. Now, critics of the church are happy to point to 2,000 years of failures in the church to mock us. And in many cases, the sting of that mockery is well-deserved. And yet, it's not all failure. Christians have opened hospitals, schools, orphanages, wherever they go through the centuries, wherever they go. Christians will volunteer their time for all kinds of causes and give of their resources more than unbelievers. Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times, wrote an opinion piece a few years ago about this. And listen to what he says. He says, go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, or genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians who truly live their faith. Now, where does that bravery and generosity to go into the front lines of misery for the world come from in Christian? Where does that come from? From this command, from this kind of command from the Lord, love one another. And so, yes, our failures in love are on display for the world to mock. They are there. And yet the reality remains that no other community at all has a standard even close To the standard that Jesus has set for us. And the more we grow in our faith in him. The more we see our sin. And the more we see our sin. The more we see our failure to love like he does. And the more we see our failure to love like he does. The less possible it seems. That we'll ever fulfill his command to love. And yet in that whole progression. Our love will be growing. So don't be discouraged. Challenged? Yes discouraged? No. There's a bit of a paradox here. The more we grow in our love, like the Savior calls us to love, the more we will see our failure to love. And so let me leave you with this thought. True love reckons with frailty and overcomes. True love reckons with frailty 
and overcomes. I'm talking about our own frailty. I'm talking about the frailty in the faith community, in the gospel community. You see, Jesus, uh, Christians belong to a new day, following a new pattern of love, belonging to a new community. And yet our ideas of love can come from all kinds of places. They can come from our family of origin, whether they knew the Lord or didn't. They can come from the people around us, our culture. They can come from the movies and shows we watch, which imitate people who live in a world of darkness and follow the prince of darkness and belong to a culture of death. In the old world, the values are different. The values in the old world are anger, greed, lust, slander, bitterness, violence, a desire for control, self-seeking, seeking our own happiness above other people. These are the values of the old age, of the old world, which is still very much around us. And so people bring those kind of values into the church. We all do this, which is why the first thing that Jesus does for us is what? He washes us clean by his death and by his word. He washes us clean. And as he's washing us, we learned this two weeks ago. And as he's washing us, what's he doing? He's taking away our bitterness. He's taking away our lust. He's taking away our anger, our desire and need for control. He's taking away all of these things. It's what baptism symbolizes. That cleansing, we've been washed by him. But remember what we learned two weeks ago. Our feet still get dirty. Right? They still get dirty. I remember when I lived in New York City. Man, it would get cold in the winter. Much like uh, it's been this past week. Have you felt like you were on lockdown in prison? You're like, let me out. So great that we're moving toward warmer weather, it sounds like. But it'd be so cold. And when you're in, you know, in New York, you'd walk a lot. Um, and I had long curly hair back then. So I remember that if I went outside and my hair was at all wet, within seconds, I would start hearing this crunchy sound in my ears of the curls banging into each other. Like that's how cold it was. And I remember one time it was early in the morning and I was out and I saw this lady. She was probably in her 30s, 40s, and she was sharp. She was dressed sharp. She had a long black coat on and black hair. She had a suitcase. She, she could have been a lawyer or a financial analyst in Wall Street, something like that. Sharp. But I just remember also that she was, you know, it was so cold that she had a bunch of frozen snot right here <laughs> above her lip. I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, like I know there's a little trickle, but I'm talking like a lot. And I just remember, like I remember thinking you know, back then thinking, I don't think that was her plan. <laughs> you know, like to be dressed so sharp, so put together, but to have a bunch of frozen snot for a mustache. That was not the plan. I mean, she was so sharp. She was so clean, but this part of her was just so dirty. And you see for us in our walk with the Lord and our process of growing in the Lord, even though, listen, even though we've all been full body washed, our feet still get dirty. Our feet get dirty. 
And so we come into the church and we leave mud stains everywhere. But we don't see them. We don't see our sin. We don't see our frailty, which is why we need each other. That's why he says, if you love one another this way, people will know that you are my disciples. Because people can bring the wrong ideas of love into the church and the wrong expectations. There are two kinds of people that I can meet uh, who are newer to our church. One of them will say to me, I am new and I love this church. The other one will say to me, I am new and I'm disappointed with this church. And so here's what I want to say to them. And I do say this to them, depending on the context. You know, to the person that says, I am new and I love this church. I say, we're going to disappoint you very soon. Hang tight. And then to the person who says, I am new and I am disappointed in this church. I say to them and I want to say to them, you're in a great place. To truly start loving the church. And I know some of you are thinking, oh, what a downer of a pastor you are. But here's why I say this. Because true love, the kind that Jesus drops, plans within the community of his people. Can only grow, listen to this, can only grow when we have reckoned with frailty. And have not run away. But are willing to lay down our lives. That's the only way that the love that he has planted within the church can grow. And you know what I'm talking about. Because you've experienced this in the deepest relationships you have. You know that when someone's love is only superficial. They're only fair weather friends or fair weather spouses. Things are going well. You're good. You're tight. Things get bumpy. I'm out. And so people can bring the same mindset into the church. I want the best parking spots. I want people to show me to my seat. I want my children to be watched. I want the music to blow me away. I want the message to lift me up. I want people to engage me in the lobby. On and on it goes. Listen. The church is not a five-star resort. I know names of some great five-star resorts. I can give them to you. But it's not the church. The church is a hospital. And we're all very sick people. All of us. It's just that we happen to know an amazing physician. The church is a family. Have you been a part of a family? Sometimes Anna and I will look at each other and we're like, did we bring these kids into the world? Did we raise these children? I'm not joking. And I know they have similar thoughts about us. Because they'll say to us, when I have my own family, I'm not going to blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, whatever. Listen, the church is the body of Christ. Have you dealt with your own body? It smells. It grows things. It has parts that don't work. Listen. The church is indestructible. It is indestructible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of the spirit of God in our midst. And yet, there is a deep, deep 
frailty within the body. And only when you have reckoned with that frailty and it has hurt you and it has hurt you because it does hurt and you've not run away church shopping, then can you begin to love the way that Jesus loves and calls us to love. And this must happen with our own frailty and with the frailty of the body. And this is why Jesus asked that piercing question in that urgent hour to Peter, to self-assure Peter, will you really, will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? Will you? Where are you? In that progression of learning to love as the Lord calls us to love. It's his final hour. He calls it the hour of his glory. But he's going to die. Do you see this? He's the one laying down his life for us. And he calls it glory. Do you see? He lays down his life for us because he knows our sin. He knows our frailty. But he knows that by his death, he will overcome sin. He will overcome our sin. And his resurrection power now lives in us. We're going to sing about this in just a moment. And I want you to belt it out. The power to overcome is Christ and Christ crucified. It's the power to overcome church, Christ and Christ crucified. Can we praise him for this? He, he is the power to overcome. Yes. And in that urgent hour, he gave us a new pattern of love to love as he loves. True love reckons with frailty and overcomes. It doesn't say there it overcomes. Have you reckoned with your own frailty? Have you reckoned with the frailty in the body of Christ and not run, but overcome? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you. Oh, we love you, Lord. We love you for your word. We love you for how good you are. Lord, we confess our sin to you. It's difficult to read these verses, to hear these verses and not be convicted by our lack of love, the absence of our love, the selfishness of our love. So often, even the best things we do are so mixed with selfishness and with mixed motives. Lord, we confess that we have valued the values of this world, lust and anger and selfishness and bitterness and, and desire for control, seeking our own happiness over the happiness of another. We've not been faithful to you. We confess this to you, dear God. And we ask you to lead us to leave it at the foot of the cross. Oh, wash us clean. Wash our feet. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness that we may grow, grow, grow in how we love. Yes, dear God. And I pray for those who've never been cleansed. They've never gone into the waters of baptism. They've never come to Jesus by faith. I pray, Lord, that you today would give them that humility, that gift of faith 
to be done with the old world, to be done with the world of sin and selfishness, and to surrender themselves to you, God. Would you please bring them near? Lord, we have an incredible ability to harden our hearts and be far from you in obedience. Would you make it so that it's impossible for us to be with the fellowship of faith and not with you? Please. And Lord, we love you. And we want to love like you have loved us. Help us. And help us now as we sing. As we sing. Oh yes, Christ and Christ crucified. This is the power that overcomes. We love you. In his name we pray. Amen.